0: I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land that i record these episodes on the gadigal people of the eora nation i pay my respects to their elders past present and emerging the interviews contained in this episode were recorded on Turabel and jagara country along with my co-hosts michael wilson and rosie ween We pay our respects to Turabel and Jagara Elders past, present and emerging and extend that respect to any Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander people listening today. Listeners, you would recall last year we brought you a six-part series on the water for development crisis that we face. In collaboration with the Australian Water Partnership and WaterAid, In the show notes, you can find more information about the Australian Water Partnership and WaterAid. Our two superstar hosts, Michael Wilson and Rosie Ween, attended the Oswater Conference in Brisbane in mid May and are bringing you a new set of insightful, entertaining interviews that illustrate both the water crisis and the strength of the water and development sectors in responding to it. Michael is Group Chief Executive at eWater Limited. Rosie is CEO of WaterAid Australia. We have had so much fun recording live interviews at the conference.
1: Hi Rachel, we think we're recording this as the first one.
0: I'll be stewarding us through the conference highlights with Michael and Rosie acting as our reporters on the ground.
2: Hi Rosie, we're here at Oswater in Brisbane. Uh, in May 2022 with um, rain falling steadily from the sky but it allows us an opportunity to catch up with a whole lot of interesting people who are here at Oswater but have perspectives on the global water crisis.
0: Oswater is regarded as one of the biggest and most exciting industry events on the calendar each year. So pour yourself a cuppa, grab a notebook and enjoy these fascinating conversations. We start our journey with Michael and Rosie chatting to Dr. Wade Hadwin from Griffith University's School of Environment and Science, where he is a lecturer in ecology and integrated water management. We're starting this journey with Wade because of the powerful reminder you're about to hear of why communities must be front and centre of our water discussions. Here's Wade.
2: Good morning, Wade. And um, can you tell us a little bit about your water story.
3: Sure, thanks Michael and Rosie. Uh, I've always been interested in water and I think it's very human to be very interested in water. We often gravitate to aquatic systems. So I'm an aquatic ecologist by training. I was very interested in understanding how humans use water and how we value water, and obviously how we also impact water. So from my PhD and onwards, I've always been interested in assessing how ecosystems respond to humans. And I guess my evolution has been uh, very much thinking about how humans can respond to change in ecosystems as well. So although my training in environment kind of excluded humans, over the course, I've very much seen humans as part of the system within which we can understand water and ecosystems as well. So that kind of brings me to where I am
2: today. And I've heard you talk about climate change being an opportunity for us to look at these challenges differently. Explain what you mean by that. Yeah,
3: yeah, look, I know there's a lot of doom and gloom around climate change and there's clearly some impacts we need to wrap our heads around, but it does give us an opportunity to move away from old ways of thinking and old ways of knowing and to embrace the understanding we've got from the science around climate change and pivot towards thinking about what we want the world to look like. So there's development opportunities There's, I guess, rethinking and reframing opportunities that climate change brings as well that enables us then to think about not only how can we provide basic services to people, but how can we do things better and in a more climate resilient way? And I think climate change forces that interdisciplinarity, bringing everyone together across disciplines to try and achieve what we're looking for, which is a more resilient world.
1: So thinking about that, With the interdisciplinary work that we need to do, thinking about climate change, how do you see the role of the water sector? What's happening now? What do you think we should be thinking about into the future?
3: Yeah, look, I guess climate change forces us to break down the siloed approach that we've often had. So the water sector has done very well at delivering water supply, and in some instances dealing with sanitation and the whole supply chain. Uh, But climate change throws spanners in the works that sort of sit beyond the scope of the typical water authority to handle. And so that again forces this integration across uh, development agencies, uh, social work, ensuring that we're including women and children in decision-making. All of those that often sit outside of traditional norms within the water sector are kind of really brought into the light when we start thinking about climate change because those that are most severely impacted are often those vulnerable groups. So it challenges the water sector to rethink how it engages, uh, but it also broadens, I guess, the scope of work that the water sector needs to be mindful of. It's not just about water supply, it's now thinking about other industries, population growth, people's health, environmental outcomes as well. So that holistic systems thinking approach is where the water sector obviously has to to grow a little bit more.
1: Yes, breaking those silos, that systems strengthening key themes. That we've been thinking about.
2: Yeah, exactly. And um, do you think there's, though, uh, a risk that the water challenges get subsumed in the climate change discussion and uh, issues of water for development and um, traditional uh, challenges of, of getting water to the people who need it begin to take a second uh, a back seat?
3: Uh, I haven't seen that so much. And I think the reason for that is that water is front and centre within climate change discourse. We know that climate change is going to intensify the water cycle, creating more stress and challenge with water supply, but also disaster risk and managing those disasters. So if if anything, what I've seen is water being talked of more often because of the climate change uh, risks associated with water.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, One of the issues that comes up with your particular interdisciplinary approach Uh, in my reading of your work is um, that you're not only bringing up uh, the technical and evidence based drivers uh, around the science of water. You're bringing in the social, economic, political angles as well as you just mentioned before. But we often forget to connect those interdisciplinary issues to the needs of the local community and to community voices uh, and forget to ask communities really what they want, um, what sort of interdisciplinary treatment works for them. So can you talk a little bit about what set you on the path to really emphasising the, uh, the community needs angle of an interdisciplinary approach?
3: Sure, yeah, look, that is definitely a challenge because in academia we can do all our work and develop amazing models of interdisciplinary systems thinking, Uh, but if that's not embedded within what the community's knowledge of that system is and what they value and what they want for their community looking forward, then it's an academic piece of work with no value. And so I'm really driven to create work that has value and has some applications. So the work that we've done, particularly in Pacific Island countries, we've had participatory engagement with communities to build that system understanding. So it's not us just thinking, this is how the system is. It's us engaging with community, asking them, what sources of water do they use for different purposes? Does that change with seasons? Do certain parts of the community miss out at different times and really trying to understand the community and the local environment as a system through the eyes of the community has been really critical. We can then take all that information away, build our models so that we can have an academic understanding and run scenarios to explore futures and then share back with the community and get their response to different interventions that may or may not work in their context. Uh, so it's very much an engaged process with local people. And I think if, if we don't do that, there's a big risk that we'll do a lot of work that cost a lot of money, but it's not going to have the outcomes we're looking for.
1: I love that example, because it not just speaks to sort of knowledge is power, but it's also valuing the existing knowledge that's in community um, for so many centuries um, around weather patterns and how they are changing. Do you see that... Knowledge also being used then for communities as they are looking at adaptation, ways that they can be resilient.
3: Yeah, look, absolutely. And conversations with people in these settings, in these communities, reveal so much. People have had experience for decades around different climate drivers and extreme events. Uh, They can express their concerns around changing rainfall patterns, which means they don't know when to plant their crops anymore because the normal triggers for planting have changed with the climate change. So we learn a lot through those conversations, but it also enables us to talk to the community about what climate change is. So although they may have been experiencing changes in their climate system, understanding what this means at a grander scale, using the evidence and science that we can bring to the table can enable us to have a sort of forward-looking conversation with the community and ask them, you know, if the worst drought you've experienced happens every two years, what do we do? What's the response that you could think about implementing locally that would deal with that threat? And that helps us identify adaptation options that the community has effectively come up with themselves. We can also learn stories about historical adaptations. So some of the communities we've been to When they've run out of water in the past, they've jumped in their boats and gone to another island that has a water resource. Uh, The challenge now with a lot of development is that infrastructure is built, which tends to mean that sort of movement around the region is being, uh, I guess, replaced with a more sedentary lifestyle, which potentially increases their risk. If they run out of water now, they're less likely to move and they're stuck. So we can learn a lot from historical experience and also open up conversations around what ifs. And I think that's really useful when we're talking with community.
2: And one of the things about your research and your writing, Wade, is that you almost start with the question of how you ensure uh, the voices of women and girls and the objectives of the empowerment of women and getting women into informed decision-making roles needs to be part of this ecosystem so often unfortunately still uh, gender equality is seen as an add-on but you almost start with that can you explain what through your uh, research journey has has caused you to um, approach it in that way
3: Yeah, and I think that's both been maturity in my development, but also, I guess, lessons learned in the field. And often when we talk with communities, the people that have the most to say and are most passionate about water issues are the women. And the women often hold the burden of responsibility for fetching water or for dealing with different water sources and how they use them. And so we can learn a lot by chatting with women in those settings about both their experience with that, but also where they feel there's vulnerability within their system, where the risk might sit for the health of their children and the community at large. So kind of entering through that lens enables us to really deeply understand the nature of the water system and how it's managed at almost the household scale. And I think those conversations really opened my eyes and made me realise that you know, certainly this top-down approach of saying this is how your water system works is not the reality at all for these communities.
2: We asked all our guests, what concerns you most about the global water crisis and humanity's ability to effectively combat it? And then what gives you most hope in that dilemma?
3: Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, Look, climate change is front and centre in my thinking (laughs) all the time on a daily basis. And I think it's the answer to both prongs of your question. So it's both the greatest challenge we face. And I guess where I see it being a particular challenge is that often uh, we all fall into this mistake of focusing on one element of climate change. Climate change is complex and hairy. It's sea level rise, it's warming temperatures, it's changing rainfall patterns, it's extreme events. And if we only focus on one of those drivers, we're going to miss out. On seeing the whole picture and we're probably going to increase the vulnerability of communities. So if we only focus on sea level rise and build a seawall, the community will get flooded. So there's issues associated with the dimensions of climate change that represent a major challenge, particularly in developing contexts, but also here in Australia. And I think trying to think holistically about all of the angles of climate change is the big challenge. But climate change is also my answer to what gives me a lot of hope, because I think it's a great opportunity. It's an opportunity for us to reflect on what we've done in the past, think about what elements we want to carry forward into the future, and maybe some things we want to let go of. And I think if we're mature enough to have those sorts of conversations, we can make leaps and bounds in development that will be more climate resilient, less carbon intensive, and achieve the outcomes for the global population that we want to achieve.
0: Isn't Wade fantastic at reminding us that climate change and the water crisis we face require an interdisciplinary response? I really value Wade's insights on the need to break down silos and understand how different systems interact and affect one another. It's a lesson we could apply to just about any industry. I also really enjoyed Wade's insights on community resilience and place-based approaches, It's a topic you could definitely dive deeper into if it interests you. Now, Corinne Cheeseman is another superstar of the water world. She's the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Water Association. As well as speaking about how Australia's water sector has an important role to play in international development, Corinne also speaks about the important role of fostering women's leadership in the water sector. And leadership is, of course, a topic close to my heart. Here's Corinne.
2: Good morning, Corinne. And are you able to explain a little bit why the Australian Water Association is so interested in international water for development issues and and so engaged in bringing the skills of your members to big, gnarly international development problems?
4: Good morning, Michael and Rosie. It's great to speak to you today. The Australian Water Association has been connecting our members to our partners in the region uh, for uh, over seven years now, and it's a really important part of the purpose of people who work in water. So, making sure that sustainable management of water is not only something that we focus on in Australia, but also to help our our neighbours in those developing countries has provided a lot of opportunity for our members to connect and drive that purpose that they have even working in Australia with our colleagues overseas, and to have a bit more of an impact. But the other thing that we hear from our members who are engaged in these programs is how much they learn. So it is a two-way street. um, And I think the water industry is a place that attracts people who want to make a difference, who want to help, who can solve problems in a variety of ways. And so connecting countries in the region to Australia has been a really big part of what we do at AWA.
2: So do you find in that education process, because we see that at the Australian Water Partnership all the time, and of course AWP and AWA work together very closely on international programming, the insights that uh, Australian practitioners bring back from working in a development context uh, an understanding of how you have to adjust and change your expectations and be flexible. Is, is is that Are those the sorts of messages which are useful then for them to pass on to others who may be interested in working internationally?
4: Yeah, I think all of those things are, are what we hear coming back from our members. I think the other opportunity is that when you're faced with limited resources and challenges that need a solution in quite a short period of time, you can be more nimble, you can be more innovative, And it's just an opportunity for people to get outside their day jobs and look at a different context. And as we know, there's a really strong connection with water and people. And so I think that cultural and people connection really enriches the experience.
1: And I think that's why the learnings are so valuable. Absolutely, and I think, you know, as we know the water for development crisis what we're facing now and looking into the future is going to take people that are really in that problem solving finding new solutions what what are you seeing uh hearing from your members and partners that you're thinking about in terms of the water crisis and what we should be thinking about and working on
4: I think over the last few years, you know, things have changed a lot and climate change is obviously impacting Australia and also our region uh, a lot more frequently and with intense um, flood or drought events occurring, um, our vulnerable neighbours are really at high risk and are feeling the impact um, more than ever. And uh, we feel the impact here too, Um, so there's a sense of urgency. And I think there is there is a risk that um, with everything that has been happening with the, the pandemic that, you know, the focus has been um, taken away from sustainable water management and particularly water in developing countries or water for all. So I think there's a real opportunity for us to, to bring it back um, and raise the profile of it and, and work with our neighbours to solve some of these problems that are, are going to require a different approach um, to perhaps what we've taken in the past.
2: So one of the things that uh, people we've talked to have, have said this week is the importance, particularly with the backdrop of the climate change crisis, the need to bring different skills and disciplines to the table. Now you've spent quite a lot of your career working in water, but you've also spent a lot of your career working in consulting and in the private sector. What sort of perspective has that experience given you in terms of making the discussion more inclusive, making sure that water people aren't just talking to each other?
4: I think the the water sector has also broadened the types of people that work in water and and are also engaging a bit more broadly than maybe we were traditionally when it was all around engineering solutions. Um, Working with the community has become a really big part of, of the water sector over the last couple of decades. But those skills around social skills, economic skills, innovation, data, technology—I certainly got exposed to those things um, in the private sector, and I can see them really coming through in water. As we try and attract people to water careers, we are looking for a more diverse range of skills, and that's going to be needed for some of the challenges ahead.
1: Yeah, um, thinking about those diverse skills and people—I mean, we're celebrating starting the celebrations of the 60th. Uh, anniversary of the Australian Water Association. What do you think are the lessons that we can learn of the power of an association here in Australia, but also in other countries or regions?
4: We work really closely with associations in our partner countries as well. And it's such a pleasure to share From an association to an association perspective as well and i think these challenges can't be solved by any one organization any one government when you bring people together in a volunteer capacity in a membership context where people are passionate have a strong purpose and can collectively work together on some of these solutions i think that's the power of associations and having a strong water sector in countries like Vietnam, Cambodia and Indonesia is going to be really important for them to solve some of these challenges and so we're interested having 60 years of experience in AWA to be able to share some of the things that work for us and what would be a sustainable model for them to support their own industries and and develop those sorts of water skills and solutions um, that they're going to need into the future.
2: So you've talked about the importance of, of human capital in, in terms of setting ourselves up well in the future for these uh, increasing water challenges to be managed effectively. I mean, one of the things that we hear, and I know that the Australian Water Association and and, and we at the Australian Water Partnership, uh, and I know Rosie at WaterAid, uh, Wrestle with is getting uh, enough young people, both in Australia and in the countries where we work, uh, really interested in taking taking on water careers. Um, so, what do you think the secret is? What what are the what are the disincentives, um, and what do we need to do better to get young people really interested in water? Mm.
4: I think we've got to be more visible and we've got to share more stories about successes in water and what a career looks like. And we have, we have had some periods in the past where we've had growth and attracted people to water, but at this time we're you know really challenged with um, a number of industries and sectors requiring skills and people, so we're competing with a number of other um, parts of the economy that are also seeking out the same sorts of people we would. I also think that you know, STEM has, you know, needs to be increased again. I mean, we have had times where there's been a really strong focus on STEM. um, And also just thinking a bit more about diversity and inclusion. So just thinking about people that are disabled, um, you know, obviously gender, cultural backgrounds, we're gonna be better for it. And so just really making water as a career attractive and making it appealing to people from a really diverse range of backgrounds.
1: Yeah, and one of the key um, conversations that we're hearing more and more about is the value of water. And I think young people recognising the contribution um, that water makes in their lives. How are you seeing that conversation shift around the value of water?
4: I think that value of water means something different now to what it did in the past. Um, and while I think climate change is um, you know certainly something that young people care about I don't know that the full connection back to water has been mm. made just yet and so I think there's an opportunity for us to open up that conversation and think about the value of water and the what that means for a sustainable economy a sustainable environment and you know healthy communities um, in Australia and overseas because uh, the the d- dimensions and the dynamics of value and how water is used it's changing across the globe
2: and uh, well it's pretty hard for me in in this room with two amazing australian water leaders uh to to ask this question but um uh, there is there it does appear to be an issue with um particularly young women seeking out careers in water uh and perhaps that uh that is an analogous to the uh, to the challenges in in STEM careers, uh, but but what do we need to do to make sure that um, that the gender dimension of the of the national and in, and the international water conversation uh, is is more balanced? Mm.
4: I think we've changed a lot. Like if I think back, even earlier in my career, I was often the only female in the room. Uh, whereas today, you now we do have between 35 and 40% of females occupy all levels in, in water businesses. Um, so we've come a long way, but you know, 35 to 40% is probably still not enough. I think we do need role models. I've had role models in my career. And I think it's a diverse range of skills and careers Um, that can be attractive to females, but I still think there's some work to do around ensuring that we don't lose sight of that. Um, As we start to broaden out the diversity lens, I, I think gender is a really important perspective and we need to continue to
1: advocate for more females to come through. Great. Well, Corinne, one of the uh, most popular questions that we have on this podcast is asking you to think about two things. Uh, One is, what is it that keeps you awake at night when you think about the water crisis? And the other side of that, what gives you the most hope when you reflect on the water crisis? That's a really good question.
4: And, um, you know, just thinking about what we're talking about with climate change um, at the moment. And we have been talking about this for a long time. And so I would say, you know, I have a sense of, um, there is a sense of urgency and and I really do hope that we actually can make the change more quickly um, than we have in the past. We need to sort of start to move forward with action. And, you know, as I said, I think in the vulnerable communities around the world, we need to do it for them. It's, It's not just thinking about, know what that means for Australia but it's it's a global problem and we all have a shared responsibility to take the action that's needed so that's something that actually really does play on my mind Mm -hmm. but I am hopeful um, because I think we actually have the science we have acceptance of some of those issues and we have an amazing range of people that actually working on some of these challenges and are coming up with new ideas and new ways to solve things even small um, small steps can make a huge difference in the longer term. And I'm really hopeful with the younger generation, I think they really get it. And I'm really hopeful that we'll be able to attract some of those passionate people through to work on on water issues um, because they are our future. And um, I'm really looking forward to seeing, um, you know, the younger generation come through and, and work with us on some of these challenges. Love it. Yeah,
2: you're doing some great work in that area, so.
4: Thank you very
0: much. Thank you,
2: Corinne, for joining us in the busiest of busy weeks for <laughs> you.
0: Isn't Corinne brilliant? The third speaker I want to introduce you to in the first episode of our three part Ozwater series is Katrina Donaghy. Katrina is the founder and CEO of Civic Ledger and Water Ledger. She speaks about how blockchain can benefit the water sector. I get very daunted by blockchain, but I see it coming up time and time again in discussions on climate change, ecosystem management, and of course, water. So here's Katrina explaining why blockchain is a great enabler in the water sector.
2: Katrina, you've got a real passion for how technology and and in particular blockchain technology can be used to lower costs improve regulation and hold suppliers accountable to their customers and of course those are all things that are very very important in an international development context when we're we're trying to provide essential services to um, particularly to the poor in developing countries so can you talk a little bit about um, how you developed this passion and what what brought you um, to to found civic ledger
5: I was born in New Zealand and my hometown was Whanganui. And we we all know that the Whanganui River or the Whanganui River is actually the very first river on the planet to be given a personhood. But when I arrived in Brisbane, I arrived in 1973, 74 when the Brisbane flood events hit us. So I started my life in Australia with a flood event. And then um, eventually I moved into Brisbane City Council and worked with the flood management team. And again, I oversaw the flood event in 2011. Um, And then I moved into Queensland Urban Utilities and got to work with the amazing Julie McClellan and started designing what urban utilities of the future. And that started to give me a really great sense of where data becomes critical for us to make decisions a lot better. And when I left QUU, I found myself in another job, as you do, and I was working in the non-for-profit sector. And it started to question about how do we give donors access to where their money's going? which is a big thing, you know, it's really question big. question that
2: Rosie, Rosie has to answer every yeah, day.
5: Yeah, so how do we actually show them where the money's going? And then I started to look at blockchain, well, it started to look at me, and then I picked up a book at my children's library in 2015 about Bitcoin. And that was a, a defining moment. You know when you have those serendipitous moments where you're presented something that's new, new, new knowledge, you can either say I want to read it or I don't want to read it. So when... In the book when it started talking about how bitcoin can help us trans you know track donations that was the moment for me and that's when my brain did a massive shift and that's when i went i need to know more about this and that was in late 2015 and as we say we went down the rabbit hole
1: i think the challenge that we have really been grappling with in this um, series thinking about the you know Crisis, the water crisis, and how it's a global problem, but it is very place-based. Very place-based. And your points around accountability and governance, have you seen examples of, you know, that information and data being power and how that can translate into the communities having yeah. access to
5: that information and
1: influence over Look, decisions?
5: we're very, I mean, one of the things I do love about the work we do is we do find that the world is very, very small when you work with this technology because it's a, very small subset of human beings across the planet. And we get to connect in really quickly. But we've got a really great, um, there's a great company in California called Common Good Water. And as we all understand with California, they've got the worst drought in, what, a millennia? It's it's just terrible. So what Common Good Water have done is that they're partnering with another company that do drop, uh, drip drip irrigation. And they're incentivizing alfalfa farmers to move to much more sustainable irrigation systems. And the water that they save by moving from, you know, surface irrigation to drop to drip irrigation gets banked. So that water becomes a conservation credit. And once it's ledgered, and we actually, they've got an independent verifier to, to verify the materiality of that water saved. And because the water doesn't move, um, we open up a marketplace to corporates to buy those water conservation credits so it's like a carbon economy, but it's a water economy and it's a derivative of water right. Mm. So we can start to think differently once we can verify authority, ownership, you know, the rights associated with water and how much water is associated with those rights, we can start to think differently on how we get better value from the same acre foot of water. But you have to think about incentivisation. How do we actually reward? but how do we also give money back and also how do they how do the irrigators or the farmers retain ownership across that data and it becomes a you know a two way benefit so instead of having an extractive economy as we all agree we need to move to a circular economy but we have to think differently around nature based assets and we have to look at how do we rethink really differently rather than linear move to circular and sometimes the regulation there's always a bit of a barrier mm. to move these things into the future because you get told you can't do things like that and you, you, yeah. know, you just can't do that. Yeah. You just don't do it that way.
2: So in, um, in any context, some people who have a legitimate right to have a say over the control of, um, uh, of public goods, including mm. water, get, get locked out of that conversation. Is there a danger that technology... Uh, can further exclude those who haven't had a voice, Indigenous people, women in certain societies and communities, Mm. um, from from that decision-making context? Or can it be used to make all of that far more transparent? These
5: are really important questions, Michael, and the reason why is because technology is an enabler. You don't lead with the technology. And I think in the early days with blockchain it was blockchain was led first. It was like, look at this new brand shiny thing. Let's go find a problem and try to solve it. <laughs> and it really, really was quite de- divisive. You know, people either liked it or hated it. And we're now seeing it with the NFTs or non-fungible tokens. But when you look at technology as an enabler, you need to understand what is the problem you need to solve. And then you check the hypothesis. But one of the most important thing at the heart of this is ethics and philosophy. So we introduced second layers of governance. So, your first layer of governance is obviously your legal institutional instruments that we understand, whether it be legislation, standards, and blah, blah, blah. But we inter- introduce a second layer of governance, which is around consensus, democracy, mm-hmm. privacy, security, access. Those sort of things become a second level of governance, which inform the design of the market from the bottom up. So that's a very different paradigm shift to the way that we've designed systems and processes in the past because we look at the regulatory instruments and then the regulation is placed upon you, whereas we flip it and we understand, again, taking a place-based approach. With Indigenous water, it's very place-based because it's culturally connected to place. So how do we design mechanisms or use technology to actually ensure that we have a shared view of the state of that sh- of that public resource because it's often publicly shared so how do we get the balance right between protecting it as a public good but also as an economic driver
1: absolutely so as you're thinking about the water for development crisis what is it that keeps you awake at night and
5: equally also what gives you hope I think what keeps me up at at night is that we keep on doing the same things over and over again, thinking it's going to get a different outcome.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
5: And we need to shift from systems to ecosystems. Water exists in all different verticals across the planet. Water is a horizontal thing that feeds verticals, whether it be industry, environment, utilities. It's It's an ecosystem. And we need to stop thinking in systems and silos and move to interoperability and ecosystem approach. If once we start to move into that thinking and realise that this is about cooperation, not not competition, I think we can start to agree on what the value of water is, rather than just saying it's all about price. We have to agree on its value and we have to agree on how we steward that water. And it needs to be at a local-based environment. And that's what keeps me up at night, is the constant being told, we can't do it that way. We never do it and it's like we need to start thinking differently and the way to do that is actually ask ourselves what is the problem we need to solve and how should we, what is the best mech, what do we have in our hands now to look at how to solve those problems but most importantly take the person who has the problem with you on that journey. Don't exclude them, don't tell them what's best for them, actually ask them. And, and I think we've now got, you know, the whole idea of, digital currencies and DeFi and and, and, you know there will be some of your listeners that will roll their eyes when I say non-fungible tokens because you know it's going through a big bubble at the moment but they are very very important. We use non-fungible tokens to to tokenize water rights because water rights or a water license is unique. It has characteristics in it, it has a date issue, it has an expiration, it has a link to a zone or geolocation, it's linked to you. And your water value is associated with that, that's yours. So that's non-fungible. But water also needs to be fungible so we can trade it. But there are characteristics that we can codify into it. And then we look at semi-fungible tokens. But just, I think from the perspective of when new tech is emerging, try look beyond the hype because there will be bad actors wanting to make a couple of bucks. Mm. It's everywhere, it's been in history. Look beyond the bubble and look at the utility of this technology. But non-fungible tokens are very, very important if you just look beyond the hype.
0: Okay, so you've heard from Wade, Kareen and Katrina each framing the water crisis differently, but each emphasising the need to centre communities and adopt highly localised, place-based approaches. Tomorrow, we'll air the next episode in our three-part series, continuing our journey through Oddswater 2022. I'll see you then.